0: As the first week of Paul Manafort's tax and bank fraud trial comes to an end, federal prosecutors are shifting away from highlighting the excesses of President Trump's former campaign chairman's lifestyle and are now concentrating on the core of their fraud accusations against him. Joining us is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, so the prosecutors are turning away from the lavish lifestyle into the nitty-gritty with the bookkeeper, the accountant, and all the documents. What's your take on how the prosecution is putting on its case.
1: Yeah, so look, the way they're doing this is they set the stage initially to give the jury a sense of just how high on the hog Paul Manafort was living, all the fancy clothes, the ridiculous ostrich jacket and the python jacket and all these different things. And they give them a sense of just how lavish of a lifestyle. Now they're explaining how he paid for it and how he committed tax fraud and bank fraud and wire fraud in order to live like that. He was hiding foreign bank accounts and defrauding the IRS when he would submit his tax returns. He was submitting fraudulent invoices to banks in order to get loans bank fraud, wire fraud. So all these things were they set up the initial piece, and now they're showing the jury how he broke the law in order to live like that.
2: What's your assessment of how the government is, is prosecuting the case, uh, particularly this latest part with the accountant and the bookkeeper?
1: Yeah, so these types of process white collar crimes, they're very document heavy and they're candidly generally pretty boring. This isn't this isn't Matlock, this isn't Law and Order. There's not going to be anything you know really thrilling about this. This is all about documents and the details of who provided invoices and how it was provided falsely. They're doing a simple standard paper case they do for all these type of white collar crimes, uh, and I, by and large, they kind of fell in love with a bit of that, some of their evidence. The judge reined them in, and that's fine. Um, but they're largely setting out a pretty lock, you know, lockdown case. I don't really know where Manafort's defense is going to come in here to really beat back most of this. The idea that Richard Gates was doing all of this on his own and that Manafort didn't know just is belied by the testimony that's coming out from the account.
0: They seem to be preparing for that defense cross of their star witness, Rick Gates. But How does Manafort get past tax returns where he answered none to the question of whether he had foreign accounts? I mean, how do you get past that kind of evidence?
1: Now, your guess is as good as mine where they're going to go with that. It'd be interesting to see how they present their case. I mean, the testimony that's coming out from the accountants, from the CPAs, from the tax preparers, laid it out pretty thickly that Gates was not the one, by and large, who was controlling all this. Even if when he did forward information, they testified that Manafort was well aware of the details, that he was very involved. So I don't know if the Manafort team has some other trick up their sleeves they're preparing and waiting for once they start their case, or if they're just banking on one of two things, one, a pardon from the president, who's clearly not happy with this whole thing going down because it mm-hmm. implicates his campaign. Or two, they're hoping there's one juror, just one, who maybe thinks this is a little heavy handed, maybe, you know, secretly thinks it's just the deep state coming out to go after Trump through Manafort and won't budge.
0: So, Brad, what are the chances that Manafort might actually take the stand in his own defense? Zero to none, or?
1: Yeah, I say, yeah, I say, slim to none. If it would be completely against the advice of his lawyers if he goes on the stand, there's no reason for him to go up there. This is all about documentation and whether or not they can just. Uh, underride, sorry, undermine the credibility of the prosecution witnesses, particularly someone like Gates. If it gets to the idea of Manafort testifying, that's a Hail Mary, and there's no reason why he should be going up there. The
0: prosecution is already putting in evidence of some of the illegal things that Gates did in this, some of the alteration of documents. So what are they trying to do to prepare for Gates' testimony?
1: Look, I mean, they're not going to try to point uh, or sorry portray Gates as some kind of you know white knight. He was part of the conspiracy. He's now cooperating witness, outlining how he helped perpetrate or and perpetuate this fraud and explain how he did it in coordination with Manafort. It wasn't that Gates was doing it all alone and Manafort was this completely unaware individual. They're going to outline how every piece of this was a coordinated conspiracy involving both of these individuals.
0: And what do you make Brad, of that one slip on uh, on Tuesday, I think it was or Wednesday where the prosecution said, "Well, we may not call gates I mean that that seemed like it was something that even the judge didn't believe at the time
1: Yeah, I don't know if that was just a little bit of you know psychological warfare or to up the, up the drama. there was no way as far as at least as far as I was concerned that they weren't going to be bringing on Gates. He's the star witness. They could probably make their case without him. They certainly planned the idea of of prosecuting both of these individuals without having the other one, so they have enough. But it's just, I think they've done a pretty good job through the initial witnesses of demonstrating that Manafort knew what he was doing. Manafort was the one sending the invoices. Manafort was the one using wire transfers. The idea that this was all Rick gates and Manafort was unaware just isn't going to fly.
0: What do you mean we had a, a Bloomberg news story out today about what the deep roots of Trump's hostility toward Mueller might be even before the the initial, you know, the investigation. Um where he 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 interviewed him to be the FBI director. What do you make of that as as a possible sort of motive?
1: Yeah, I saw that. I think if if, if in fact that's where the president's thinking is, I think he's just you know pulling it whatever strand and straw he can to try to claim there's some type of bias, some type of conflict. I'm sorry, that what they're pointing to, what Rudy Giuliani keeps referencing, what the president's referencing, that's just way too thin of a read on which to hang this hat. The idea that there was a dispute over the golf fees seven years ago, that's not going to be enough to conflict Mueller out. Nor is this the fact that he was interviewed for the job that he had once held for 12 years. So what? This is why the DOJ ethics people looked at Muller and screened him before he took over the role of special counsel. He was already cleared for that. Nothing else has come up, and that's simply not how the conflict of interest rules work.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Brad. As always, that's Brad Moss. He's a partner at Mark Zaid. And, uh, of course, the trial will continue tomorrow. It's expected to be about three weeks, but at the pace it's going, who knows, it could be even shorter. Coming up on Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law, Rick Scott blankets Florida with campaign ads as he tries to unseat Democratic Senator Bill Nelson. We'll look at the numbers and the latest polls to see what's happening in Florida with that important seat. This is Bloomberg.
2: Yesterday, the Trump administration took another step in its efforts to chip away at President Obama's environmental policies. It proposed suspending required increases in vehicle, vehicle fuel efficiency standards after 2020 and to limit California's ability to limit greenhouse gas emissions. Speaking yesterday, yesterday <coughs> excuse me, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders defended the actions.
3: What the EPA released yesterday was a notice of proposed rulemaking, not a final rule. The notice lays out a series of options for how to go forward with CAFE standards, and the notice asks for comments on the range of options. We're simply opening it up for a comment period, and we'll make a final decision at the end of that.
2: Jennifer Del- Deloy is a Bloomberg News environmental and energy regulation reporter. She joins us now for more on this story in our Bloomberg one studios. So, Jen, what is the process now?
3: Well, right now, we're looking at a public comment period, frankly, for uh, the next 60 days, at which point stakeholders, you know, environmentalists, automakers, the general public uh, will weigh in, give their ideas and feedback back to the administration. And then it will be many months uh, that we'll see the administration negotiating with uh, automakers, with California uh, regulators and others trying to get to a final proposal we could see at the very end of this year or more likely early next year.
4: Does that trouble car makers? I mean, that is a long process, and they have to plan as to how they build these cars and what sort of standards they need to meet.
3: Our reporting indicates that you know automakers are concerned about uncertainty. Generally, uh, it's important to, to look at how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Automakers, frankly, uh, to some degree, started this process. They asked the Trump administration to revisit the issue, and uh, and now the Trump administration has uh, they are most concerned about a prolonged legal battle mm-hmm. with California and other states over the aggressiveness and the stringency of these standards that could delay you know, a, a, a final plan next year from really taking effect and, and really uh, extend the uncertainty around this for years as they really need to be making cars to meet these standards.
2: Yeah, and, and doesn't this get to the fact that uh, they don't they they can't build two separate types of cars, one for California and and states that uh, similarly are tough on emission standards, and then one uh, model for the rest of the country.
3: Exactly. So for years, actually decades, California has had the authority and the ability to set its own rules on air pollution. and, And that, frankly, as the most populous state, that has meant that it's effectively been in the driver's seat. Its standards uh, tend to encourage the federal government to follow along. Other states follow California's requirements. Uh, they set a benchmark. And uh, in the Obama administration, when these uh, rules were put into place, the administration worked with California and with automakers to develop one harmonized program so that you didn't have these dueling standards. The concern here uh, from automakers is that because the administration is going after California's ability to, to set its own tailpipe emission standards, that you could see two different standards emerging and that, of course, would be tricky. Uh, I mean, in some cases, it would be a significant economic blow.
4: Yeah, I was going to ask why he was going after California specifically, but there are other states, too, that are kind of following California's lead. Are they at risk? Is going to target them about as about well? Think about a dozen
2: others, Amy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think yeah. about a dozen others. Yeah.
4: Exactly. So uh, we had a pretty clear indication of how they felt about
3: it yesterday. Those uh, states, along with some others, uh, 19 in total, vowed to challenge the Trump administration's plan if it's fine finalized uh, in in its current form Uh, you know they have a vested interest in preserving essentially the california model and uh, the california standards since they follow them and uh, they've indicated they're going to fight this
2: where has big oil been in all of this
3: It's uh, interesting. You wouldn't necessarily hear them talking about it too terribly much in public, uh, but they have been working behind the scenes in favor of this, Uh, some more so, some companies more so than others, refiners, uh, sometimes more than uh, oil producers. Uh, we uh, we have uh, reporting that, you know, they've met with uh, administration officials, members of these companies and, and their leading trade groups have met with administration officials to push this. Mm-hmm. And and it's really no surprise. I mean, this would increase oil demand domestically. Uh, the government uh, estimates that uh, it would be some 500,000 additional barrels of uh, demand uh, in the early 2030s. That's per day. Uh, that would result from this program. So you know that that's not chump change. It's, it's a small amount in a, in a global market, but it's not uh, it's not insignificant to the oil industry, which is why they're quietly lobbying behind the scenes on this.
4: You know, Jenna, it, it occurs to me there's this whole other industry that exists now because of lower pollution and different standards. Electric vehicles are not going to go anywhere. Uh, there are other uh, you know parts of the industry as well. Does that provide any traction or pushback against the rollbacks? Which is I think that's a Proper sentence, but is that a pro- appropriate type of pushback? Are they speaking up?
3: Well, you know, electric vehicles, I, I, as you noted, you know, they're they're here to stay. Elsewhere in the world, I think it's it's unclear. You know, their long term status in the United States. But, you know, around the, the world, you have government policies that encourage their development in places like China and major cities in Europe um, that, that are contemplating, in some cases, banning combustion engines altogether. So, you know, that global pressure means that automakers need electric vehicles to gain more traction in the United States. Uh, here, they're just 1% of new auto sales right now. Mm. So what makers don't want are, are unrealistic mandates that force them to sell these electrics at a huge loss for years. Uh, in the United States just to get more traction. They really would like to see a program that rewards them in the United States and encourages their development here since they're having to sell them around the world.
2: In 10 seconds, what's the administration's official reason for uh, making this, making these uh, changes?
3: Well, they say that the proposal would uh, lower the cost of new cars. And because it does that, it gets people buying new cars that are safer and not holding on to older, clunkier, less safe models.
2: Okay, Jennifer DeLoe, Bloomberg News, Environmental and Energy Regulation Reporter.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.